Hello, this is Angelique with the Gaston County Public Library. You are listening to the Book to the Library podcast, the audio recording of the library's Book to the Library author talks. On March 24, 2018, local author and Vietnam War veteran Jack McCabe visited the library to discuss his book, When We Came Home, How the Vietnam War Changed Those Who Served. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, it's an honor for me to be here today and talk to you about this, uh, talk to you about my project, my book, and I'm very proud of it and uh, took quite a while to, to come to fruition. Um, once again, my name is Jack McCabe. I'm the author of When We Came Home, How the Vietnam War Changed Those Who Served. I served in the Army from 1970, January 1970 to 1973. In my uh, family, college was really not an option, so two days after I turned 18, I joined the Army, and uh, seven months later, I found myself in Vietnam. Uh, I stayed in Vietnam from, uh, for about 19 months. Uh, I was 18 when I went over. I was 20 when I finally came home. Um, this book is about, it's not about war stories. It's not about for the most part, what happened to us over there. It's really about what happened to us after we came home. And uh, the challenges that we faced, the uh, welcome or unwelcome that we faced when we came home, and uh, how people are doing today. A lot of it was very heart-rendering for me to uh, talk to everybody and, uh, and all the calls I received and all the interviews that I did. <clears throat> but I'd like to go back a little further right now. And on August 6th, 1945, my father was in the Army, he was in the Philippines. And on August 6th, the furthest atomic bomb was dropped on Japan. On August 9th, the second bomb was dropped. My father and his unit loaded up on LSTs and prepared to sail for Japan one way or the other. On August 15th, the Japanese announced they were going to surrender. And uh, at that point, my father and his entire unit were on their way to Japan. The surrender was signed on September 2nd. My father and his unit arrived in Japan on September 15th. They, once they arrived there, they went on occupation duty for three months. And then they sailed for home. The thing to remember about that is that they were there as a complete unit. They were all there together. They'd been together in the Pacific for the last two years. Now they were on occupation duty as a unit for the next three months. Then they boarded a ship and they started sailing for home. And there again, it took them about two weeks to cross the Pacific to San Francisco. And they were all together as a unit. So during this period of time, they had an opportunity and a lot of quiet time on the ship because there wasn't a lot to do. They had a lot of opportunity to talk about the things that they had done in the last two years, the things they saw, the things they experienced, and they were able to work things out. They had a lot of decompression time. When they arrived in San Francisco, my father used to tell me, he, he would talk about his homecoming all the time to me. 
He didn't talk much about what he did in the Pacific, but he talked about his homecoming. And when they sailed in under the Golden Gate Bridge, there were crowds, there was confetti in the air, it was a cool, crisp morning, clear as can be, and uh, there were band, a band waiting on the dock for them, and uh, they were just treated like heroes. Everybody was topside on the ship watching the coming in, and, and it was just quite, he always described it as being a magical moment. After that, they were bused to Oakland Army Depot, and there they were issued new uniforms. They were given a steak dinner and a beer, compliments of the U.S. government. The funny thing he told me was that when they were able to uh, get their steak dinner, the dinner was served by German POWs. And the German POWs were all as healthy as can be, you know, because they'd been living good, uh, cooking food for all the returning GIs. And then here were all of these guys coming back from the Pacific, and they were all yellow from anti-malaria pills, and they were thin, and they were, he used to tell me, they wondered who won the war at that point. But uh, after they were issued their uniforms and received their campaign ribbons that showed they'd been in the Pacific, then they went out on the town, and, uh, and they couldn't buy a drink. Everybody bought them drinks. Everybody treated them like kings. It was really an amazing experience. Then he and a friend of his, who was also from Chicago, I'm from Chicago, uh, went, tried to board a train to go back home to Chicago while there were thousands of troops trying to get home. So it took, it took him a long time to get on a train. My mother knew that he was in the States. She had no idea when he was coming home, when he'd be there. They finally got on a train, and there again, this is somebody he served with for the last two years, and uh, took a train to Chicago, which took about a week, four or five days, a lot of stops. And they finally got home, and then he took a cab to his house, and. Uh, and the real welcome began for him. My coming home experience from Vietnam was a little different. Uh, the important thing that I want to make here, the important point is that he was with the same guys for all that period of time. We in Vietnam, for the most part, except for several units that initially went over, larger units, everybody went over individually. Everybody went over individually, in a group of troops, in a group of soldiers, Marines, airmen, whatever, but they went over alone, and they came home alone. Now, we flew over on commercial airliners, I did, charter planes with 200 guys in the plane that uh, none of which knew each other, but we all were, we were all in it together, and when our tour was up, we got on another plane and we came home. We didn't know anybody on the plane. We talked to each other on the plane. Once we got to where we were going, everybody just dispersed and went their own way. I came home from Vietnam twice. The first time I came home from Vietnam was in November 1971. And uh, I was going to be coming back after a 30-day leave and uh, spending another seven months, eight months there. So when I came home, I left my unit. I caught a helicopter into Saigon area, Tonsonut Air Force Base, and uh, changed from my jungle fatigues into my khakis, checked in. The next day I caught a flight to Chicago, to uh, the States, stopped in Anchorage, or Japan rather, stopped in Anchorage, 
and then flew on the Travis Air Force Base. And from there, like my father, we boarded buses to Oakland Army Depot. When we approached Oakland Army Depot, there were protesters out there. They were throwing garbage, they were throwing fruit, eggs at the bus, calling us names, they had signs, we were called baby killers and a number of other things which I won't repeat here in mixed company. And uh, then we were, if we needed to be issued uniforms, we got them, otherwise they released us and right away we went home. 48 hours after I left Vietnam, I was standing in my dad's living room. So we had no compression, decompression time. We went from Vietnam to home in two days. And that was, our, that was my welcome reception. Now everybody has a different reception. Everybody dealt with it differently or, or had a different experience. The second time I came home was at the end of May in 1972. Now at that point, uh, the war was really winding down. So because of that, I was at a, at a base uh, near the South China Sea, and my duties at that time were to uh, be out in a bunker, out in a foxhole protecting the base. I was on base defense at night, and I was on shotgun, riding shotgun on convoys during the day. And I did that for two months. So I didn't get much sleep in those two months. My stress levels were high. The Easter offensive was going on at that point. Uh, we took a lot of fire on these convoys and uh, just being out in a hole out in the middle of nowhere because we didn't have a lot of people to defend the base. We had to move the perimeter in so the runway was outside of the, the perimeter. But when my time was up in 1972, I went over to supply turned in my rifle, turned in my helmet, turned in my ammo, and I was exhausted because I was in a, in a, in a bunker all night. I caught a helicopter to Tonsonut Air Force Base. I changed my clothes into my khakis. I boarded a cargo plane that afternoon, an Air Force cargo plane for the flight home. Now, it took me three days to get home on that plane because we blew an engine over to Pacific and we had to divert to to Hawaii to uh, get a different aircraft. But I went from a hole with a rifle to my house in three days with no decompression time whatsoever. In the plane that I flew back on, I shared with 14 other people and that was it. So that was my coming home the second time. Now, on a side note on that, because I had no idea when I was gonna be coming home and no idea when I'd get there, when I got to San Francisco airport, this time there were no protesters, there was no one. When I got to San Francisco airport, um, I'd been traveling for three days. I hadn't changed my clothes. I came from the tropics. I hadn't brushed my teeth. I hadn't slept. And I got there and I figured, well, I'll change my clothes because the military and the airlines at that point had requested we not wear our uniforms home. And the reason being is because of the protests and the problems that were happening to the GIs. So I figured, well, my clothes looked horrible anyways because I had big sweat stains under my arms and everything else for traveling three days. So I went 
and uh, to the airport, and I was going to change my clothes into civilian clothes. But I figured I'd stop at the gate and see if there were any flights coming to Chicago. So I did. And the gal checking in said, you know, we have a flight just pulling out right now, and we have one seat available, and I'm going to stop the flight. And I said, well, I don't know if you really want to do that. I should go change. But they did. So I got on the plane, and as luck would have it, it was a first-class seat, sitting next to a very starched major who gave me dirty looks the entire flight home. And uh, when, I, when I arrived home in the Chicago, uh, I tried to call my dad, and he wasn't home. And I tried to call my brother, and he wasn't home. I tried to call my grandmother, and she wasn't home. I tried to call my friends, three or four of my friends, and nobody was home that I knew. So I took a cab to my house, and I didn't have a key. So I couldn't get in the house. So what I did was I dragged the garbage can over to the, over to the bedroom window, and I jimmied the window and broke into my own house. And unfortunately, there was no beer in the refrigerator on top of that. So that was my coming home experience the second time. And then after that, I had to, uh, I had to still go serve for six more months uh, in the Army before I got out. Um, why did I write this book? Well, my dad, like I say, used to tell me his stories of coming home, and he usually he did this over a couple martinis. You know, you get he would start talking about it. And um, years, many years later, after my dad was long gone, I used to think about used to think about what the differences were between his homecoming and our homecoming from Vietnam. And not everybody who came home from Vietnam had a bad reception. Most were met with indifference. You know, people really didn't, nobody really asked us about Vietnam and what it was like over there. Uh, some were met with hostility. Uh, a lot of people were just, there's just no welcome at all. Some did, like I say, some didn't. But the more I thought about the differences between our homecoming, the more I thought, well, I wonder what that would be like to compare all these stories of World War II veterans, and then I thought, and Korean War veterans, and Vietnam veterans. And I'd never even spoken to a Korean War veteran about their homecoming experience. I still haven't. You know, you don't see many Korean War veterans around. They don't, you know, you see, you see a lot of people now wearing their Vietnam caps and things like this. There's not many World War II veterans around anymore at all. But the Korean War veterans are kind of the lost generation of veterans. So I decided that I was going to write this book and compare all three stories. I've never written a book before, so I had no idea how to go about it, but I figured, well, I'll just dive right in and, you know, you just do it. And when you get it done, it'll be done. So I started interviewing World War II veterans. And uh, I found out that that was a problem because the World War II veterans were certainly well up there in years, and while they could remember, those that could, could remember dates and things that happened and this kind of thing, they really couldn't, they really couldn't get the emotion behind it that, uh, that what I was looking for is a story. Uh, so they really couldn't remember it. Not like my dad used to talk about, but my dad, when he used to talk about that, was in his 60s. You know, so he was, you know, now the, now the World War II veterans are in their 90s. So I said, well, I'm going to give up on that, and I'm just going to deal with Vietnam veterans 
because that's what I know. So I started interviewing Vietnam veterans. And uh, the more I interviewed, the more I found. A lot of them didn't want to talk about their experiences. A lot of them wanted to talk about it but did not want to be in the book. So I did have people who wanted to call me, who called me or wrote me letters or emails and wanted to talk about you know, what happened to them but did not want, to, did not want that to be in the story. Uh, I received some calls at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, veterans, you know, a couple of them were crying. Uh, one of which was suicidal, but uh, fortunately I was able to help him get into the VA. So, and he's doing okay right now. Um, unfortunately, one of the people I interviewed did commit suicide a year later, 68 years old. Still bothered by these things. He's not in this book. And the reason he isn't because he never sent the release. You know, I made everybody who I interviewed, I had to first of all verify that they were an honest to God veteran, that they actually did serve in Vietnam, that the stories rang true, and they signed a release. So uh, that was my criteria. And uh, he never signed the release. Uh, I received a call from his wife about a year later, and she said she had just found out that he'd never signed that release, and she signed the release and sent it to me, but by then it was too late to put it in the book. Um, and I've since talked to her quite a bit about this situation and, and what's happened with her. I talked to her actually last week. Um, but as things went on, the more veterans I talked to, the more interesting it became to me. And then I realized that I really needed to get a broad base of veterans where I had someone from every branch in the service that I could find, if I could find someone. Coast Guard was a problem. Um, and there were Coast Guardmen who served in Vietnam. But I also wanted to talk to Australians. And uh, about 60,000 Australians served in Vietnam. And I was very surprised to find out that they were treated just as poorly when they came home as we were. I had no idea. Uh, not that I avoided knowing it, I just never found that out, never discovered it. But uh, they were, and I was able to find some of them to interview also. Uh, women veterans, I talked to uh, quite a few women veterans. There are several in the book, interviews with them, both uh, Army uh, I didn't talk to any Navy or Air Force, uh, not because I didn't want to, but because I just, I didn't find any. You know, none came forth to talk about it. Um, so I did talk to some of them. I talked to donut dollies, and most of you probably are not familiar with what donut dollies were. Donut dollies were women who worked for the Red Cross, and they all had to be college graduates and they signed up for a year tour for either Korea or Vietnam. And what they did is they brought, a, what they called brought a touch of home to the troops that were in Vietnam. So they had uh, recreational centers set up at the major bases and they logged thousands of hours flying out to different bases and different fire support bases and different, you know, when troops were out in the field, they went to see them. And to me, the donut dollies were the 
most tragic figures of the Vietnam War. And the reason being, they, they were so important to us. They were such a great morale builder. But they worked for the Red Cross. So they were subjected to rocket attacks, mortar attacks. Four died there. One was wounded when a helicopter was shot down. She was shot through the leg. Um, they were under a lot of stress. Many of them suffer from post-traumatic stress. And many of them are suffering from Agent Orange-related illnesses, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And the problem is they get no help from the VA and they get no help from the Red Cross. So they have to, anything, any issues they have, their health issues, and they have a lot of health issues, um, they have to deal with that all on their own dime. Any post-traumatic stress, they need help from that. They have to seek their own help, and they're on their own. They get absolutely no help from anybody. And like I say, they are, they're the tragic figures of Vietnam as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the book took me three years to write. I interviewed over 150 people. My first draft was 550 pages long, which was just a little bit too long, <laughs> so I was told. So they had to cut that back to 300 pages. So I lost a lot of interviews in the process. Uh, like I said before, I had to call out the fakes. You know, I had to call out the stories that were not true. Uh, and there were some, both male and female. So if I couldn't verify a story, it didn't go in there. No matter how much I thought it was, it was true, it didn't go in there. Um, I had one uh, fellow who was very convincing about his PTSD problems and had a lot of uh, uh, problems where he had robbed a couple banks and he had been in and out of jail and had drug problems. Well, a background check told me that that wasn't true. None of it was. It was very convincing, though. So, needless to say, he didn't make it in the book either. But the stories that are in there are individual stories about what happened to us afterwards. You have a lot of anger issues, not just about uh, combat experiences, but the way people were treated afterwards. You have a lot of anger issues. There's a lot of PTSD. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of multiple marriages. Uh, these are kind of universal stories that you're seeing over and over again in there. The stories that I picked, I did not pick stories just based on a certain theme, like I'm looking just for, you know, uh, a bad experience coming home or something like that. I wasn't looking for that kind of thing. What I was looking for was just a good, honest story. But that's the way the good bulk of them came out that they did have a hard time afterwards. They had a hard time identifying with their peers. They had a hard time uh, fitting in, like we were talking about a little earlier. Fitting in and, uh, in many cases, uh, experienced a lot of things that, uh, moral injuries, things that they witnessed or did that haunted them later on in life and still do. The suicide rate is something that, uh, 
I'm sure you've heard 22 veterans a day are committing suicide. Most people don't know, according to the VA statistics, 70% of those are over the age of 55. So there's an awful lot of Vietnam veterans that are still committing suicide out there. And uh, the new ones, the new veterans, I hope they're doing a better job with, than they did with us. Um, <coughs> so when I look at this, um, and, and the impact that it's had, I think that the most important thing to me is that for Vietnam veterans to understand that they're not alone, that they went through a lot of this universally uh, with other Vietnam veterans, and for the public to see that um, what we went through, for the protesters who treated us this way, who um, called us names, threw things at us. I'd like them to see this too. I would love to have more dialogue with some of them uh, about this situation. Um, I was telling one of the gentlemen here that, and I'll be talking at uh, episode 10 of the Ken Burns program on Wednesday. And in that episode, there's a woman, uh, I think her name was Nancy Beaverman, who was one of those protesters and talks about the names she called us and the way she treated us and, uh, and how bad she felt about that. And I've, watching that, I, I can't tell you how that made me feel. It made me feel really good to the point where I found her on Facebook and I sent her a message, and she actually responded. <laughs> and uh, we had a, a real nice exchange, because I really appreciated that. Uh, and I hope to stay in touch with her, and uh, maybe stay in touch with some more people, too. Um, it was a real cathartic experience for me, because I personally have gone through a lot of anger issues. Fortunately, I'm on my first marriage for 41 years, so that's, hopefully that'll stay that way. <laughs> my wife's a saint. But uh, this was a real good experience for me. And, um, you know, issues that we face like PTSD and things, there's triggers that happen that we don't know when they're going to happen, and they, can, they come out of nowhere. In my personal, in my personal experience, um, we, I started doing reunions. I started looking for the people that I served with and started doing reunions. And we had uh, a reunion at the wall about four years ago, the Vietnam Memorial. And I did fine at the wall. I did fine. I didn't have any problems at all. It was great. You know, it was good to see the guys. We had a real nice ceremony. We laid a wreath. But afterwards, a couple of days later, I had two real explosive anger outbursts and that were over some stupid thing that means nothing. And, from, and I knew then that I needed to get some help. And uh, so I went to the VA. And I sat down with, uh, with the psychologist there, and he asked me, why are you here? And I said, well, I said, I'm here because I've been for the last 40 years, and I don't want to go in the ground that way. So fortunately, that's done me a real lot of good. And any, any vet who's having problems, I, I hope they go in there. 
You know, the other issues that Vietnam veterans are having are issues of Agent Orange-related illnesses. And uh, Agent Orange has affected us enormously. You know, we have so many people sick from it. I have heart and lung disease, and I have neurological problems where my hands are doing all kinds of crazy things. I can't even turn a page with my left hand anymore. And uh, but the VA is not recognizing that. But the Agent Orange illnesses are really bad. Our female veterans uh, have passed on a lot of birth defects. Now, they say that Agent Orange is going to take seven generations to purge from our body. It's a lot worse for the female veterans than the males, obviously, because, uh, and, and one of them talks a lot about it and in the, in the, about the problem she's had with her, with her kids. And uh, the VA is only recognizing one illness that's passed on. And there's just too many instances that it's, that it's not the case. So we're dealing with a lot of Agent Orange illnesses and unfortunately we're, we're starting to die off at a higher rate. Uh, and we're dying off a lot younger when I started searching for the guys I served with, I found an awful lot of guys that had passed away. And the average age was 55. So it's much younger than the, uh, than the, certainly the, you know, the death rate of someone who did not serve in Vietnam. Um, so Agent Orange is a big issue. Um, and that is, that's a very sad thing for all of us to deal with that because we know we have problems. I've got to go get heart scans again on Monday. So, and uh, I'm sure the other Vietnam vets here will tell you that they've got their issues too. But we're all hanging together, you know, we're a brotherhood. And uh, if, uh, if you ever saw Vietnam's reunion, you'd see how much of a brotherhood there is. You know, you see these people, it's just like, you, it's just like you were yesterday. You know, 40 years just melts away, and uh, because we're all, you know, we're all the same as we were. Our voices are the same. Everything else, <laughs> nothing else looks the same, but the voices are the same, and uh, the personalities and the character are all the same. But that's basically, you know, the story in my book, and uh, you know what it was like for me to write it. Um, like I say, I spent three years working on it and interviewed an awful lot of people and had an awful lot of stories. I wish I could have, in, I wish I could have included them all. And unfortunately, unfortunately I couldn't because the publisher decided that they had to cut that back way back. So, um, but that's, that's basically my story. This has been the Book to the Library podcast featuring Jack McCabe. <laughs>